The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, Glory, this is Dudley. Good to be back with you again. Uh, Eager to talk to you this time about uh, our subject. A couple of things I want to remind you of, however. Uh, One is we're doing an audio book. Some of you have been begging for that for years and I didn't have the, I uh, started to say intelligence, which is true, uh, the technical uh, ability to do it, but we do now. And so we're doing one of the most powerful little books we've ever done, Orphans No More. We're doing that audio. And so you can download it, and pretty soon it'll be an audio books.com, whatever that is. Uh, you need to get that and listen to it on, while you're going around. It's a small, relatively small book. But as I said, it's been one of the most uh, powerful books and the most uh, sought-after books that we've done. And uh, it was kind of an afterthought, but it has worked really well. So th- there you go. And uh, we'll be doing some more, more audiobooks. I mean, uh, hey, uh, this fall, I am doing a weekend with Dudley, November 6, 7, and 8, out at the ranch. You remember some of you have been out there and we've done five pillars and I've done some major intense teaching and it's primarily me and uh, whoever I brought in. But instead of featuring other speakers, this, this is going to kind of be my stuff. Because I think I, I'm hearing God say some things for us in this day that I haven't been able to share with all of you. And in that kind of form, uh, you know, giving a monthly thing is one thing and sending out videos is another thing. But being able to spend a weekend together where we get to uh, hash it out, uh, discuss it, talk about it, uh, that's important. And so we'll be doing that November 6, 7, and 8. And we'll be talking about uh, how to embrace the kingdom of God among us, what it means for it to be to be among us and how we live it out. So it's co-ed. Uh, you need to register. As you know, some of you have been out there. There's a certain amount of rooms. Uh, where, you know, for a couple or whatever, but then, then there's a really nice bunkhouse and, uh, you'll be taken care of. It's all, it'll all be comfortable and the food will be great and the fellowship will be better. And hopefully the teaching and the discussion will be life transforming. So put that down and uh, get ready for it. Thank you for, uh, caring about what happens to us here at Kerygma Ventures. Yes, the Corona uh, event has affected us financially and other ways in that we have been able to, uh, we've been having to adjust how we do ministry. So for those of you who have given, thank you. If you haven't, I would appreciate it. I would really appreciate your giving as generously as you can. Okay, this month, uh, we are living in these profound times that we talked about last time. Uh, people who are exhibiting at a higher level than normal a longing for leadership. And that's that's my title, a longing for leadership or just longing for leadership. You know, there's something about us. We are created to to follow God. We're we're created to uh, enjoy him and he being God and us being the created, we're created for that. And so there's something about our very 
created design that looks for leadership. We, we're limited. We need leaders. Uh, we saw it exhibited in the Old Testament when <clears throat> they had been delivered from Egypt and they were living under, uh, just under God as a theocracy. And the people began begging for Saul. Uh, well, they were begging for a king. Because there's something in people's like, uh, you know, when I don't know what to do, I need somebody to lead me and I need somebody to blame when things go wrong and somebody to exalt in when things go well. And so there's something about that. And then when times get confusing, uh, that longing even gets greater. And when you're living in a culture as we are, that doesn't believe that there is a final word, we don't believe that there's a uh, an ultimate leader, that all of us are, we have our own final word. We, uh, we determine what truth is and your truth's good as my truth and so forth and so on. That's postmodernism and it has had its effect in all of us, even in the church. And when you're living in that kind of environment and there are problems that come up that can't be solved by you or, or by me, there, it, it, it resurfaces that, I need a leader, I need a leader. So we're in election season, presidential election year. And so there's all this talk and fervor about uh, who's gonna be our leader. Uh, it bothers me to some degree that we reduce it down to just the head of the ticket, you know, whether it's Trump or Biden, or Trump and Pence and Biden and Harris, uh, and that's our human tendency is to reduce it down to the person. And now it's become a whole battle about the two leading people in it. Trump's character, Biden, da, da, da. And, uh, sometimes in that we forget that that's not really what you're voting for. You're voting for, for a narrative. You're voting for a, a value system. And, uh, you know, I'm not ready to sign in on anybody's, any of those uh, personalities, but there are certain things I unashamedly believe in. I, you know, I, I believe in, I'm pro-life. I don't make any bones about that. I, I'm not for killing the babies and I am Second Amendment. I am religious freedom. I am for uh, fair and legal immigration and I'm for justice, I'm for eradicating racism. I, you know, there are lots of things that I, I'm i for. Uh, I just don't want to reduce it down to I'm for that person. But that, that that's that's a part of where we are in, uh, in our culture of who is going to be our leader. And it happens in the church. You know, you have a church that has a set of beliefs and as doctrines and have their values and whatever, but your people say, I go over to Pastor John's church. Well, it's not really not Pastor John's church, but our tendency is to want to make it a personality. So I, I want to talk about longing for leadership and uh, just to try to set the stage for you. I actually wrote out the first paragraph so I could make sure I said it to you right. So, so here's, here's the intro to the whole thing. Uh, we feel leaderless because we have rewarded celebrity over character, skills over maturity, and 
we find ourselves stumbling in our search for a compass pointing toward true north. The obvious kingdom agent to provide mature leaders, the church, has been co-opted by consumerism. We end up producing celebrities rather than elders. We are ruled by spiritual and emotional children uh, while we fight for our rights like children do and play with our toys, our idols, God calls them, while the world outside is uh, slipping into insanity. Uh, more and more I hear people saying, did you hear what was said on the media? It's, that's insane. We, we can't understand each other. It's like, where are you coming from? And so for, the, for that reason, we don't talk about it a lot. So anybody that doesn't know that there's a leadership vacuum in our midst, uh, hadn't been paying attention. So as we're looking forward, as we're looking for that leader, the leaders that would point us to the leader, what, uh, what can we do? So I went to second, uh, second Kings chapter three. This is a story of Solomon. So now here's the setting historically. David has been king. He's getting old. They'll replace him. God's made a promise to him that one of his sons will sit on the throne. So it's time for Solomon to be king. So Solomon is young man, relatively young man, and God gives him a, a chance to ask him for anything. So I'm going to actually read you the passage, and then and then I'm going to uh, examine the text. I'm going to question the text. So here's what it says: Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, no, however, because no one had yet built a house in the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father. Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, you have always shown great steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David. Although I'm only a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. As your, and your servant is in the midst of a people you've chosen, a great people so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Other translations say a hearing heart or an understanding heart. Some even say wisdom. It is wisdom, but his literal request was give me an understanding heart uh, to, to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, 
for who can govern this great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this prayer, that he did not ask for riches or promotion or for the death of his enemies, but he asked for the ability to do his assignment, to, to be the leader of God's people. So I, I want to examine that text and ask some questions of it because I believe it would help us in our place where we are today in, in our search for leadership. Because as we pray for the leaders of our country, we're praying for each other. Because in this country, in this form of government, the people are the ones who need the wisdom. Wouldn't it be great if every person who is a Christian would go to God the Father and say, I want your discernment, I want to know how to vote, and I want to know how to do my part in this country. Might be a different country, huh? What if we did that at church? What if we did that at home? So uh, so let's ask the questions that, that we need to ask about this. First question I have for this text is, uh, where is God in this? Where, where is God in this whole process of leadership uh, and choosing leaders and what he gives to leaders and so forth? Where is, where is God? So what this text tells us about God is that God is generous and eager to entertain our prayers and to give us what we need. He's eager, generous. Sometimes we get the idea that God is kind of chintzy. Well, he'd dole a little bit out here and a little bit out there, but basically he didn't want to spoil us so he didn't give us very much. He, he, it was God who initiated this encounter with Solomon. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't a result of Solomon's fasting or his religious duties. It was, he had a dream. He was doing nothing. He slept and God appeared to him and God said to him, I'll give you whatever you ask. And we've all looked for that moment, right? That genie moment when you find the genie on, on the seashore and I give you three wishes. And, and so, uh, so it's better than a genie, God says. What do you need? I own it all. I'll give you whatever you ask. Now, I think God meant it. I mean, I think whatever Solomon had asked, he was giving it to him. So Solomon prays. That's a good motivation to pray, to know that God is eager to give us what we need, give us what we ask, and that he is very generous. Because when Solomon asked, he gave him that, and then he gave him a whole lot more. He gave him the stuff he didn't ask for. So so that's one thing we need to keep in mind here is we're dealing with a God who, who's, who first thought up the idea of having some physical people on this earth, some humans that would share his life and enjoy him as much as he enjoyed himself and that they would be his partners on the earth in discovering and developing all of his, all the treasures of creation. That was God's idea. And so God is still interested in helping us get that done. And if it's our job to rule and manage, uh, he'll, he'll give you whatever you needed. Now, that, that's a good thing uh, if we understand the, the whole nature of it. The other thing is that God is, God is faithful to his promise and his purpose. This, this is what we see uh, Solomon saying. He's saying, uh, Almighty God, you have never been accused and found guilty of breaking a promise. 
uh, all through history, it's a story of fulfilled promise. You promised Adam that you would win the battle through humans. You promised Adam and Eve. You promised Noah. And then you promised Abraham that he, he, you would reverse the, the curse that came through Adam. You, you promised Moses that he, there would be a people you would lead out. You promised David that he, one of his sons would always be on the throne. And so Solomon's saying, I'm, I'm the result of that promise. So I fit in the line. I fit in the story. I'm, I am, you promised and I'm there. So why wouldn't I trust you? You're faithful and you've got something to do and the story is going to continue and you're letting me play a part in it. Now, you said, but that's Solomon, man. He was, he was a king of Israel. I'm just me. Yeah, but you play a part in the story. And, and, and God is just as willing to meet your need to, to give you what you need to do to do your job in the story. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself with application here, but that, that's what's there. So, uh, so that, that's some stuff we see about God there. Okay, so I want to ask the text this question. What about Solomon's prayer? What's good or bad about Solomon's prayer? Where, where was Solomon in this thing? Well, I love this. Solomon starts off his prayer by saying, Almighty God, I'm just a child. I don't even know how to go in and out. Now, he, he wasn't a physical child. He was a young man, but he wasn't a child. But he felt like a child. I've discovered this about truly wise men. They don't feel like wise men. They feel like children. Now they think like wise men, they think like a prophet. Like what's my role here to speak for God? But, but they feel like children. If you, if you run into a guy who's feeling like a wise man, stay away from him. He thinks he's got the answers. He thinks because of his accumulation of knowledge or his experience or his uh, being born high in the right family and whatever, he, he thinks he's got it. Uh, stay away from him. He's, go, he's going to stumble at some point and he'll fall on you. So, uh, but the real wise man feels like a child. Why? Because he knows that the nature of how this relationship works is we depend upon God and God works through us. So I want to tell you about a, a conversation overheard uh, that, that was going on between my two of my grandsons, one four, one seven. So the four-year-old says to the seven-year-old in the midst of their discussion and playing, you don't know everything, to which the seven-year-old said, that's true, but God does, and he tells me stuff. Well, uh, I've told several friends about that, and they're all saying, can you get me an appointment with him? Uh, <laughs> I want an appointment with the seven-year-old because I'd like for him to ask God about some stuff for me. So I'm trying to get an appointment as well. But... Now think about it. He's got the essence of wisdom there. The essence of wisdom, the way God defines it, is that you have a hearing ear, that you are partners with someone and conscious of the presence of someone who knows everything and is eager to give it to you. Now, now that's better than knowing everything because you're in, you're in relationship with him and he is so wise that he won't give you information you don't need. I know that's that, 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 you say, I don't want that. I want to know what I want to know. Yeah, I get it. Me too. But, but, but God is willing to say to you, uh, in total love, 
you know what? I'm not obligated to satisfy your curiosity, but I am obligating myself to give you whatever you need to accomplish what I told you to do. So, okay, that protects you from knowing stuff you don't need, need to be knowing and from getting arrogant about all the stuff that you think you do know. So I, I love that about Solomon's prayer. I'm just a child. No wonder Jesus said those who enter the kingdom of heaven must become like a child. He didn't mean childish, childish, playing with your toys, doing your own thing, demanding your own right, fussing. No, 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 that's childishness. Childlikeness is realizing that I am a child and that there are some that are more mature and that God is the ultimate source of everything I need. That's true childlikeness. And so he came as a child. So that, that, by the way, that's my new definition of wisdom this week. And that is uh, wisdom is feeling like a child and thinking like an elder. An elder thinks in terms of community. It's, it's about others and, and we'll get to that. So uh, secondly, his request uh, relates to his assignment and to God's people. So his request shows true wisdom in that he is feeling like a child, acting like an elder. He is not concerned about building his own, fulfilling his own dreams or building his own kingdom or securing his own place. Uh, he is concerned about the people that God is concerned about. Uh, that's, that's an emotional elder. It's, the, it's a spiritual elder. It's a wise man who's concerned more about the community and what God wants to do with the community than he or she is with themselves. That's what children do. These are my toys. It's my bike. It's what my world is. I want everybody operating in my world. Uh, but one who has gone through the adult stage and the parenting stage, it's like, I, I just concerned about the community, the people. So, uh, I've been to lots of, uh, leadership training stuff and they often spend a lot of time talking about, you know, set your imagination free, dream big, imagine the biggest, most impossible thing. And if you can imagine it, you know, you can have it. And you know how, what 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 can you see yourself doing, and what can you see yourself driving, and what, where you, uh, you know so you you get all caught up in your your dreams. Uh, there's great value in setting goals and and allowing God to give you vision and whatever. But a wise man, a leader, one that can be trusted, is not trying to build their own kingdom. They're not trying to fulfill their own dreams. They are willing to take God's dreams because he can dream bigger than you can. And his dreams for you are bigger than yours. Uh, eyes not seen, neither is ear heard, neither has it entered into the imagination and thoughts of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But he has revealed them to, to, to them by his spirit. That's First Corinthians 2. So, uh, so, so we see something about Solomon here that uh, that caused God to smile. And, and that's the third thing I'd say about that, that impressed me about his prayer. I, I was reading it the other day and it says, it pleased God that Solomon asked like this. And I thought, 
that's what I want to do. I want to pray a prayer that pleases God. I mean, whether I get an answer or not, I just, I just like to please him. Uh, so I want to pray a prayer that pleases God. That, that's really the goal of prayer, isn't it? Uh, the goal of everything. You know, some would say, no man, I want to pray to get answers. I want to pray, I want to get powerful demonstrations. You know, it's like, okay, fine. But uh, I'm not saying that kind of prayer can't please God. I'm just saying the overall thing is I'd like to pray the way that pleases him because I'm in partnership with him. So, so he, he prayed a prayer that pleased the Lord and the Lord said, I, you know, I think I can trust you with all kinds of stuff. So he gave him what he didn't ask for along with what he did ask for. And so from starting at that point in the text here, I won't read them all, but for the next few paragraphs and even chapters, we have God, uh, the writer of the book of First Kings, we have him describing to us how God answered that prayer. Uh, Solomon begins to operate in that kind of wisdom. So the first story we have is uh, two prostitutes living in the same house, and both of them have babies. And during the night, one of them rolls over on a baby and kills the baby, and she swaps out her baby with the other one. And, and then they go before uh, Solomon to get the problem judged. And he said, well, let's just cut the baby in two. And because, you know, I don't have any eyewitnesses. Well, we just cut the baby in two and give each other half. And the real mother said, no, 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 give it, give it to the other lady. He said, well, you're the real mother. You can have it. That's wisdom. So what kind of wisdom? He was walking with God and God told him in the moment. It wasn't that he had studied a bunch of books about that and whatever. He was able to discern right and wrong, justice and injustice, based on the fact that he had a relationship with God who was answering his prayer and showing him how to lead God's people. And then, then we get into some very mundane stuff in chapter four and all goes through who was, who was selected to be the officials and the different things that were going on in, in the Jerusalem and in Israel and who, got, who was elected here and who was appointed here and what their job was. You go, man, why is that in the Bible? I mean, how, how boring can you get? Well, it's in the Bible because it's showing how God is interested in the mundane as well as the majestic, that he is not just interested in what happens in the temple and just what happens in the spiritual or the religious world. He's interested in all this stuff. He's interested in how you structure your organization. He's interested in who who's in the right place and how you determine that. And so wisdom is being demonstrated in all of that, of putting things together so that the life can flow in the structures. And, and, and so we see that kind of thing happening all, all through the next text. So so God did answer his prayer and it's demonstrated in the in the scriptures. So uh, so those are the first two questions is where is God in this deal? What, what, what does this text teach us about God? Secondly, what does it teach us about Solomon's prayer, the wisest man uh, on earth? Uh, what, what do we learn from him? What's, what can we learn if we want wisdom? Uh, but then the third question, which, is, which always comes about for every text is, how does it relate to me? Uh, where, where am I in the text? So let me just remind you of this. You already know it, but let me remind you. None of the characters in the Bible are worthy of being worshipped, are, are modeled after completely. 
Solomon. Uh, he was wise, uh, so much so that people came from all, all over the world to see him. But you know what? He didn't die too, too, too wise. He made some really stupid decisions in the last part of his life. You say, why is that? Well, you'll find that to be true of all the characters in the in the Old Testament, New Testament too, except for Jesus. And that is, uh, humans are not the ultimate model. Uh, only Jesus is true wisdom. Uh, Solomon was uh, a great prefiguring of it. He was a shadow of it. He, uh, and we learned some stuff from him, but he is not ultimate wisdom. Jesus is. And... So when we come to the New Testament and Jesus has died and been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit back to live in us uh, individually and as the body of Christ, uh, what does that look like? What does wisdom look like on the New Testament side of things? So uh, to get a, a glimpse of that, go with me to Philippians uh, chapter 1. This is Paul writing to the to Christians, he's writing from prison. He's writing to the church at Philippi who had been, who had heard his message and had bought in and they were partners together in, in ministry. And so uh, please listen as I read this. Read along with me if you have a copy of the scriptures. It's really, really, really insightful. Listen to this. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So in, in his prayer for the people, we learn a lot about what this life of, of wisdom looks like. It's a life of sharing the very life of God, but it's sharing also the life of God in his church. It's sharing a common faith, a common love, a common fellowship. It, it is the communion of the saints. So, so what, what do we learn? What does this text teach us? It teaches us that God and his faithfulness, like Solomon mentioned, is, can, is able and is willing to complete the work he started in us. That's a good thing because if God started it, God can complete it. If I started it, I don't think I completed it. If God started and said, then it's up to you, I still don't think I can complete it. Solomon didn't. God started to work in him and Solomon didn't keep it. God says, I, I, will, I will complete the work. Now, does that mean that you don't fail at times? It means you're not weak at times? No, 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 it means you will. It means you'll stumble, it means you'll fail. It means that 
that you'll need grace. It means that, that, that you'll blow it at times but because that's the process of learning grace. I mean, after all, we are here to be uh, trophies of God's grace. How are you going to express grace if you never need it? So yeah, God will, will, will let us fail. He'll let us have need. He'll let us be confronted. He'll, he'll, he'll let us be humbled because that is his process of carrying us through to the com completion. But the point is, God is able to bring it to completion. Uh, that, that, that frees me up. That kind of frees me up. It's like, okay, if God is, if he's taking on that responsibility, I can, I can afford to be real. I can afford to tell you when I fail. I can afford to tell you when I fear. I can afford to tell you when I'm having trouble believing. I, I can afford to tell you when I'm having trouble loving. I, I, I can afford to be honest with you because, hey, God, God said he's going to complete things. And, and the more real I am, the quicker all that will work. I'll show you that, that the sequence in a moment. So, so, so he says, uh, one of the things that, that's true about us is that God is able to complete his work. Uh, the other thing this talks about here is so much of the Christian life as depicted in the New Testament is a radical life. It, it is not a moral life, a moralistic life. It is not a life based on principles and propositions. Uh, it, it is a life of shared intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this, you and I share the same gospel. I long for you with the compassion of Christ. What does that mean? It means that the same way Christ, the, the resurrected Christ, longs to be with you, I do too. The same, the, the same love he has for you, I have. I'm sharing his love. It's not just old Paul here. It's Paul in, in union with Christ, loving you, longing for you, wanting to help you, want, wanting to see you, to be with you. So, so Paul is demonstrating here that this wisdom is not about an accumulation of stuff. It's not about intellect and smart. It's, it's about a confidence and a relationship that God knows everything and he'll, talk, he'll tell you some stuff, as, uh, as Fowler, my grandson, said. So, so he talks about this shared life uh, that's ours. And, and then... Uh, in the last part of it, I want you to go back there with me and let's look at this text because it's really important. The sequence is important. I'm going to read it again to you and then, then I'll make a couple comment notes on it. He says, And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Now, notice the sequence. As your love grows from one degree to another, as your love grows, your insights grow. Your ability to determine right from wrong, your, your, your understanding of perspective and your understanding of the narrative that runs everything. Love is the key. The growing in love is the key to, uh, to insight. So wisdom is not something God just kind of drops down in your head with a, with a dropper. It, 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 it develops out of love. 
Now, the way love works is you are loved first. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God loves me. He loves me unconditionally. He delights in me. He, he forgives, excuse me, forgives me. So he loves me. As God loves me, I love him. And as I love him, I want to do what he says. And I love those who love him and those whom he loves. So I start loving others. And as I do that, love makes good decisions. Love chooses the best. That's what he says here. He said, uh, to help you determine what is best. See, if you don't have love, you can make some moral decisions. You can make some ethical decisions. You can make some decisions that are better than some other decisions, but you can't make the best decision without love because love is that one thing that frees us from our, our preoccupation with self. And it's, it's the, the one thing that gives us perspective to see things like God sees it. So if I don't love people, but I'm trying to make laws that rule their life, uh, it won't be the best kind of law. If, if, I'm, if, I, if I am trying to help somebody change, but I don't love them, uh, it won't be the best decision. Only love produces the best decisions. And so here's, here's the sequence, here's the progression. Here's how God completes his work within us. He causes our love for him to grow. All right, that's step number one. How does he do that? Well, a lot of times it's called he exposes where you don't love. That's, or, or exposes where you're, where you're not accepting his love. So you're still condemning yourself. You're still disqualifying your stuff. Still putting up with shame and guilt in your life. You, you know, you're still uh, judging yourself by some standard that God doesn't use. Or, or are you receiving his love as he is? Or are you willing to hear him say, I, I love you just like you are. I delight in you. So, so God will expose your lack of being loved so that he can love you. And the more he does that, the more you love him and the more you love him, the more you see things the way he sees things. So, so here's the sequence. Love turns into insight. That is seeing things the way God sees it. Insight helps you choose what's best. Therefore, you're making good decisions. That kind of living produces a confidence that when judgment comes, I'm not afraid of it because I am actually living a life that is fruitful. And so I'm, I don't have to make any excuses and don't have to hope that God forgets, you know, what I've done. It's like, no, I want it examined. I want, I want you to see. I want you to see what your redemption did in my life. I want to see what your love did in my life. So you have confidence in judgment and you have the fulfillment of knowing that you have a harvest of righteousness. All, all that's right there. That's what it looks like to live in the New Testament side of biblical wisdom, that we're living conscious, consciously confident in the presence of God who is eager and ready to give to us what we need for the assignment we've been given. And as we live in that conscious confidence, then we make better and better decisions until we're making the best decision. And those best decisions happen as our love grows. 
And the last thing I'd say is love does grow. It's not like you get it all. Like I got all the love of God. God loved me enough. He sent Jesus. I got all God's love. Well, no, it grows. If you make it static and you make like, okay, he shed his love in my heart. I got it. That's it. No, no, it grows. And the, the way it grows is God just keeps on rubbing you up against people that are kind of unlovely and uh, putting you in circumstances that don't feel all that great. But your love for him grows. Your love for, for each other grows. And as that happens, then you start making good decisions. So, hey, as you move, move into this fall season of election and whatever, uh, let's pray for wisdom. Let's pray that God's people will seek God and say to him, I put all my agendas on the table. I want to do what pleases you. Tell me what pleases you. I refuse to be manipulated by conventions and media and spin and propaganda. I just, I have a responsibility here. I am responsible. This is my country. Uh, just like that was Solomon's uh, people. This is my country. I, I, I'm one of the owners. So I, I need your wisdom. And I won't treat this lightly. But not just for your, not just for the election, but for all the other decisions that are in our lives. We have settled not for the best, but for the average or for the passable. So we make some decisions that are better than others, but what about choosing the best, the absolute best, which is the life of absolute love for him and abandonment to his cause and to his purpose. That kind of life will be joyful in every situation and attractive. And instead of people walking around wondering what to do and if there's a leader somewhere, when they look, they will see some true elders. Not arrogant people who think they can run everybody's life and who have a system that can fix everything. No, not those. People who feel like children and think like elders. That's what God has for you. And it's uh, something you can ask for today and he'll give you. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of, of getting to talk about this with my friends and your people. And so I thank you that you've made yourself as available to us as you did to Solomon. And uh, so I thank you for the wisdom that's available to us. And so we want to we want to open our hands and our hearts and receive what grace offers now in this day and age. We want all that you have offered in the life of Christ to be given to us. And so we ask for it and expect it. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've enjoyed being with you. Until next time we get together, this is Dudley Hall with Kerygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.